0: Hey, good morning, North Boulevard, you guys online. Good morning to you. Happy Mother's Day. Give the mothers a round of applause. It's a great day. Hey, so uh, I want you to do something. I want you to do something. You can do this at home, too, if you have a a woman present. I want you to, if you're kin to her, sister, husband, brother, if you're kin to her, I want you to reach over and grab the hand of a woman who's next to you, assuming she'll let you do that. Adam, why don't you take Julie from me there. Um, If you're sitting next to a woman and you're not kin to her, don't, don't do it. L- leave her alone. Just leave her alone. Um, but I would at least look at her. Because here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at a woman. I want you to look at a woman and I want you to repeat after me. Everybody ready? Repeat after me. Without you, the universe would be incomplete. Because that's exactly what Genesis chapter 2 teaches. After God created the heavens and the earth and he places man in the garden and all these animals come to man and Adam looks at all these animals and God says, whoa, there's something missing in creation. There's still something missing. And what was it that was missing? It was woman. And really there's a sense of complementarianism or mutuality, if you will, or reciprocity. Ooh, I got it. Reciprocity. I wasn't even sure I could say that word. There's, there, that is built into our created order. And one way to think of that is imagine a world where it was just all men. Like even you men don't want that. Imagine a world in which, a world in which it was all women. So it's not, God's not indicating that you have to get married to be complete. But what, here's what he is saying. He is saying that the creation without both men and women the creation is incomplete, and that the crowning achievement of the created order in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 was the creation of women. And that's not patronizing to say that. I mean, it's a theological statement that God realized that this creation is not done until He creates Eve. And that's why wherever Christianity has gone—this is your first blank— Women have been elevated wherever the Christian faith has gone. So in the Roman world, there was a principle called patria potesta, which meant that the man had life and death authority over his wife or wives and his children. It was the Christian religion that ended that social structure. In Greece and Rome, it was very common for men and women to take their baby girls and abandon them in the woods, a form of abortion. It was the Christian faith that ended that. In the Hellenistic world, the Greco-Roman world, women were not offered an education. In fact, uh, when you read about the schools of Plato or Socrates or Aristotle, they're always men, only men. It was the Christian faith that changed that. We were the ones who offered universal education. You read about widows and unmarried, they're called virgins sometimes, but unmarried women. It was the Christian church that adopted so many of those unmarried women and those widows that they eventually founded religious orders in order to care for all of them. The thousands upon thousands of them, we call them convents today. And in exchange, those women offered fabulous service to the kingdom of God. It was because of the Christian faith that the foot binding practices, deplorable practices against girls in China were finally ended that widow-burning in India was brought to an end, that the abhorrent practice of working little girls in sweatshops in England were ended. The idea of human rights that we inherited from the Christian faith brought about things like the women's suffrage movement, women's rights movements, the temperance movement. All of these were bequeathed to us as God's gift to humanity, when God taught us that women are the pinnacle of God's creation. As Dorothy Sayers says, Sayers was a novelist and poet, contemporary to um, C.S. Lewis, a friend of C.S. Lewis, by the way, who uh, was also a Christian, and she admired Lewis's writings, and so she did some of her own. Actually, some of Sayers' works are are fascinating, fantastic, but fascinating as well. She made this observation about... uh, Jesus and women. She said, perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first in Jesus's life at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like Jesus. There'd never been such another, a prophet and a teacher who had never nagged at these women, who never flattered them or coaxed them or patronized them, who had never made jokes about them who rebuked them without querulousness." That's an old English word we don't use much, but it means he didn't nag at them. He just spoke truth to them. And she says, praised them without condensation, who took their questions and their arguments seriously, who never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and men, who had no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them, completely unselfconscious. That Jesus comes to teach us that because all humans bear the image of God, which David Hunziker did a great job explicating last week, because all humans bear the image of God, we treat women right. That's what we do. And that's really the call of this lesson is for us to learn to treat women with honor, to have the challenge laid before us, to be reminded of it, and to aspire to it again in the cases where we've not been faithful to it. I'm going to say that I may be the only preacher of the 350,000 churches in the United States of America who is doing a Mother's Day sermon based on the late Bronze Age text of Deuteronomy chapter 21. And when you see this text, you might think to yourself, wow, I don't know what he was thinking, Um, but God gave me the text. And what I want you to see in this late Bronze Age text is actually this text, though at first glance won't appear to be, this text is a solid defense of the dignity and honor of women. But to do that, you need to understand a few things. You need to understand one more time what Old Testament law is actually up to. There are two kinds of Old Testament law. I don't want to just give you a lot of extra words, but you'll run into these if you do serious research. There is what's called apodictic law, that is moral law. These are just general principles such as thou shalt statements. Those are general, timeless laws. A good example, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's an apodictic law. The Bible gives us some of these, but it actually doesn't give us that many of them. These are timeless principles. The more common laws in scripture are what's called casuistic or case law. This is how you handle a certain principle, excuse me, a certain situation by bringing a moral principle into it. So casuistic law is an if this happens, then you should do that thing. And I wanna make sure you understand that sometimes the if is not a good thing. It's not as though you're supposed to do the if part. I'll give you an illustration. If you have an accident, an automobile accident, then you should not leave without first giving your insurance information and your registration information, that sort of thing. Okay. This is a casuistic law that describes what you should do in the event of an accident. It's not recommending that you get in an accident. Like it's not a law that says, I hope you all have an accident. It's just a case law that says, if this were to happen, this is what I want you to do about it. It's an effort to bring a moral principle into a case situation. So casuistic. Most of the Old Testament's case law. And the thing to remember about case law is it's not a recommendation. It's not as though God is saying, this is how I want everybody to live from now on. He's just dealing with a specific situation. And the three situations we find in Deuteronomy 21, they're all case laws that have to do with women, but more than just women, but women especially in this text. The first case law, if you marry a POW, you have to treat her with dignity. Now, that's going to be the big stumbling block for most of us because we're thinking, what? wait, you marry a POW? You marry a slave? That's somehow a good Mother's Day text? Well, I just want to remind you of what I've said before. In the late Bronze Age, the era of Deuteronomy, nobody had the money to run prisons. They just didn't have the money for it. It's a luxury that we have. They didn't have the money for internment camps. So if you went to war and you, you defeated a town, What are you going to do with all the prisoners? There's no place to put them. So they just divvied them out. Everybody took one home with them. That's what's being envisioned in this scenario. Imagine you brought a woman home and you, you fall in love with her. What do you do? I want you to know in this case law, God's not saying, I hope that happens or go out there and see if you can catch you a woman and fall in love with her. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if this were to happen, here's how you got to do it. And what he suggests is, what well, not suggests, he orders, if you were to marry this woman, you're going to have to treat her right. You can't mistreat her, which, by the way, is revolutionary in the late Bronze Age. That's what we don't see because we actually live on the bright side of a long Christian tradition of human rights, but 3,400 years ago, they were on the dark side of that tradition. Those rights had not evolved yet. The second case study is what's called a primogeniture and polygamy. So this is a situation where imagine you have two wives. And by the way, he's not saying you should have two wives. He's just saying, if you do, and you like this one, but you don't like that one, you can't take the inheritance that should go to this one and give it to that one. Why? Because it's dishonoring the woman. You cannot dishonor a woman that way. So, the second text of Deuteronomy 21 is a text that teaches you, you have to honor women. You have to treat them with respect and dignity. And then the third principle is the principle of the disobedient child. And in this principle, we're taught that if a child is so rebellious that you simply cannot control them, well, that's a death sentence. It's actually a very serious thing. So you can stand maybe one or two cells in your body getting sick. Here's what you can't stand. You can't stand every cell in your body getting sick. And so God says, I want you to stop it at its bud. If you start seeing children rebelling against the parents, I'm not going to tolerate that. And so we're going to look at what that looks like in just a second. I want you to see that the moral precept behind behind all three case laws is the same. You must treat women with honor. Even the POW woman, she is not your property. You can't do what you want to do with her. You got to treat her with honor. If you've got two wives and you like this one and not that one, you cannot mistreat this one. And if you're a son and you think about rebelling against your mother, don't. You can't do that. As Moses mentions, it's not just the father who has to be obeyed in this text, but it's the son to the mother. Again, I don't know if there's any way for us to appreciate how revolutionary that is to say the son in the late Bronze Age has to obey the mother. But that's what Moses says. Let's look at the text. We can do this pretty quickly because I've kind of introduced the case laws for you. We're in verse 10, chapter 21. Deuteronomy, and here's what Moses says. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord God delivers them into your hands and you take captives. If you notice among the captives, a beautiful woman and you're attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head and trim her nails. So that actually sounds like a punishment. It's not. That's a form of mourning. You're going to see in just the very next verse. Put aside her clothes that she was wearing when captured. After she's lived in your house and mourned for her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her, be her husband, and she shall be your wife. So all Moses is saying is, give her, you have to respect her enough to give her some time to mourn. Like you can't capture her in a war and then say, hey, this evening, let's get married. She's just been through this trauma and she deserves the time to mourn it. That he wraps it up. If you're not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. But notice you can't sell her and you cannot treat her as a slave. You've dishonored her, not by marrying her, but by letting her go. So in our first case study, what Moses is teaching us is that you have to respect even a woman who's a prisoner, even a woman who's a prisoner, needs to be treated with dignity as the image bearer of the Lord God Almighty. In fact. If we go back to that opening statement, even the woman who's the POW in this case, even she is the pinnacle of God's good creation. Let's keep reading. He gets to the second question, the question of primogeniture. If a man has two wives, again, he's not advising that. Jesus actually, we'll get to Jesus in just a moment. But Jesus says, look, that was was always a concession. That's not what God ever intended. He didn't want, he never intended for you to have two wives. But if a man does have two wives and he loves one, but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, When he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn uh, to the son of the wife he loves in preference to the actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the first sign of the father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. A word about polygamy. The first thing that's about polygamy is that surprising as it is to us, polygamy was a form of social security in the ancient world. By the way, it still is in some areas on planet Earth today. Difficult for us to conceptualize, but many women wanted polygamy, not just the men. And here's why. In a world of crazy scarcity, where people lived on the edge of survival, the bigger your family, the more likely you were going to survive. And so polygamy was a way of caring for a large group of people building your own community so they could also care for you. That's why when you think about it, I mean, Sarah actually says to Abraham, get you another woman. We need another woman. Again, that's so contrary to what North Americans experience as well as it should be. I'm glad it is contrary to us. It's contrary to us. You know why? Because we've lived 1500 years in a Christian civilization. Like we're the beneficiaries of this beautiful principle taught in Deuteronomy. So don't look back at it now and say, man, what a stone age. The only reason we live the good lives we live now is because people believed what Deuteronomy said about women. Now that we're on the winning side of this great evolution of human rights that came about through the Christian Bible. Now that we're on the winning end, we don't need to look back at ourselves when we were in the first grade and say, man, look what we didn't know back then. No, you had to go to the first grade before you could get to graduate school. So second, the idea of primogeniture, it's a simple concept. Imagine that I have 2,400 acres and I've got six sons. If I divide the property on my death between the six sons, each one gets what, 400 acres, right? Easy. Imagine if each of them has six sons, and they divide it evenly. What happens? We're well beyond my math capacity, but somewhere between one acre apiece and six thousand—I don't do math—but somewhere like that. Here's my point: at some place, you've divided the land so many times that nobody can live on it anymore. You've robbed all the descendants of any ability to produce enough food to live. So the way you deal with that is you give the lion's share of the inheritance to the oldest son and everyone else works for him. By the way, that was being practiced in the U.S. right up until about 100 years ago. Still practiced in some places. You remember, the, you, you, you hear about the squires of England. We used to have squires in North America in the 19th century. You read about squires. The squire is the second son. He's the guy that didn't get the property. And he worked for the first son. That's all that's being said in this text, that there is a primogeniture and you cannot play favorites. And here's why. Whenever you give someone that property, that's the land upon which the mother also has to live. So if you can imagine a guy's got two wives, He likes this one, he likes her son, and he gives it to this woman. All of a sudden, she cuts the other woman out when he's dead. Now this woman literally and her children starve to death. And Moses says, no, you cannot treat a woman that way. So though the text looks backward to us, it actually points in a beautiful direction, which is you have to treat women with respect. And then our third text. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father, I just want to make sure you see, and mother, because this is unique in the ancient texts, the legal texts that we know of from antiquity, where you have to obey the father, but nobody cares about obeying the mother. We have in this text, not just a child obeying the mother, a son obeying the mother. And I can tell you that even I'm 60. Even when I was a kid, we debated whether or not we had to obey mama. Me and my brothers, my brothers and I, I just defaulted back to that, me and my brothers. Um, Like if daddy said it, we had to do it. If mama said it, it was an open discussion whether or not he had to do it. And uh, which is why she always said, I'm gonna tell your dad when he gets home. And usually that was enough for us. But in this text, you're told even the sons have to obey their mothers. And listen to what he says. If they do not obey father and mother, they will not listen to them when they discipline him. His father and mother shall take hold of him, bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, "This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. I just want you to see the description here. This is not discussed. We're not talking about a three-year-old child who says no. That's not what's being discussed. We're talking about someone here who's old enough to be a drunk, old enough to be a glutton, old enough to be... um, really just a reckless person. Then all the men of the town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear hear of it and be afraid. I want you to see that what's being said is children owe their parents honor and obedience. We're no longer under the statute, so we don't stone anybody. But the principle of honoring your mother is so serious that it was a capital offense to violate it in antiquity. The least that means is you ought to call your mother this afternoon. That's the least it means. It's an underline of the word women. That we owe something, we we owe something to women. And that's what's being said in all three of these passages. Now I want to make a couple of observations. I'm just going to draw a few lessons. The first I want to recommend to you two books. Uh, by the way, at North Boulevard, like, we've got really some competent, we've got a lot of competent people in all sorts of areas, but we've got a lot of folks here who've written books. And I've been wanting to um, interview Roy and Margaret Thompson about their book, which came out last year, Progress, Not Perfection. It's a really good study of, of parenting. You can get it online at Amazon. Uh, we're st- I still want to do that. We're going to do that. But the pandemic came, and it's just knocked a lot of our plans off. Um, and I thought it would probably be difficult to bring them in on this text today. But this is a book I want to recommend. It just talks about parenting and sometimes parenting in very difficult situations and how their marriage grew stronger through parenting. And then I also want to recommend this book uh, and I see Renee's here. So this is the book on gender. Renee wrote this book in 2018, I think it was. This is a good book for just understanding how male and female can work together in the family, at work and especially in the church. Some real important questions and as gender becomes more controversial in North America, this very well-written book becomes a really important book for us. These are subjects we really need to talk about. And so I just want to recommend both of those books as I move on. And I want to explore concepts. So this is just kind of random points before we get to our final application. Let me explore this concept. Just take a second with you. It's a concept that we are vaguely familiar with in North America because we have soft forms of it. But in the Old Testament, they had a hard form of it. It's the concept of wardship, wardship. So if I said, for example, that, uh, you know, so-and-so is a ward of the state, that's what I mean. That kind of language, a ward of the state means what? It means that the state functions as that person's parents with all the rights and responsibilities that a parent has. So we still practice wardship in North America, but it's a very soft form of wardship, which by the way, I'm glad it's soft. I'm not advocating going back to hard forms. I just want you to know, we have the luxury of a Christian tradition that emphasizes autonomous freedoms. So we have a whole system of rights built against wardship. But in the ancient world, most people lived in wardship, and most people liked it because wardship does this. In a wardship society, I give my future to someone else. Remember in a warship society there's such scarcity that if I'm in charge of my future I'm likely going to starve to death so you give yourself over to someone else and in exchange they protect you defend you and provide for you what i want you to see is this is a very common arrangement it's still a common arrangement today when i take groups to israel if we go to the arab side the west bank or uh, jordan or someplace uh, oftentimes what i'll say to the listen carefully because this could be misunderstood it's not there's no statement about arabs the statement about wardship. What I'll say is every man on the trip is ordained to be a brother to every woman on the trip. And if I take a couple of women walking somewhere in the streets, I tell them, you got to link arms, and stay close to me. Here's why. There's no problem with Arab men, but Arab cultures tend to have high, strong, should we say, um, hard forms of wardship. And in an Arab culture, if a woman's not attached to a man, that means she's available. So if a woman's just walking around the streets of an Arab neighborhood without a man, it means she's available. So they're going to come up and ask you for a date. They're not going to hurt you. They just gonna ask you for a date. They like you. And so in order to prevent our women from getting the awkwardness of someone harassing them, I say, okay, stay close to a man. That's a wardship culture. By the way, do, that's not an ugly thing. That's just how most, most of the world has to live. Every woman in the Old Testament world was assigned to a man or she probably was going to die. And the man in, in response was supposed to protect her, defend her, and provide for her. Now, when I say that about a worship culture, you might think to yourself, oh, those poor women. But you need to know most Arab women like it. I mean, if you haven't paid attention, it's not like they're forced into it. Many of them like it. I'm I'm not defending it. I'm not criticizing. I just want you to know it's not the image we get of these poor oppressed people. In fact, I want to show you how unpoor and oppressed they are. The Bedouin people in the Middle East, until the last 30 years, lived lives that were unchanged for millennia. If you wanted to know what an Old Testament person lived like, all you had to do is go visit a Bedouin because their lives have not changed a bit in thousands of years. All that, by the way, that's not true anymore because they started getting cell phones about 20 years ago. And no joke, now you go to Bedouin village and they all got cell phones and they have uh, they have GMC trucks and, you know, Dodge Rams. And it's just so weird to see, but everything else is the same. So if you go visit a Bedouin camp today and you just interact with the women when you can, and by the way, you have to be really cautious about it. Because remember, every woman's assigned to a man and the, the men are protecting the women from you being aggressive with them. Here's what you'll see. This is an image of a Bedouin woman. This photograph was taken in the year 1900. It was colorized just to bring it to life. When you look at this woman who grew up in that strong wardship culture, do you see a poor, feeble woman who's scared of the world and deeply oppressed? And a, no, not at all. I mean, this, this woman's got a look on her I mean, She could whoop me. This is a strong woman. When you look at the women of the Old Testament, they're not like whooped puppies. They're strong women. They're strong, they're smart, they're bold. I just want to make sure we get that because I don't want us to have the wrong vision of what the Bible says about women. You've got a woman like Deborah who's, you know, who's, who is so brilliant that the commander of the armies has to go to her and say, will you fight my enemies? And she says, you know, no, you, you idiot. It's your job. But I'll sit on the mountain and pray for you. You got so there's these five women in, Deut- in Numbers chapter 27. They're the daughters of a man named Zelophehad who dies in the wilderness, and they come to Moses and they say, "Our dad died. We don't have any brothers. The property's ours." Again, that's not strange to us because we live on this side of a Christian tradition. But on the other side of the Christian tradition, that was a really bold thing to do—to go to the absolute appointed prophet of God and say, "That's our property." And Moses says, well, I better go talk to God about it. And God says, yeah, it is. It's their property. Make sure they get to keep it. I'm just saying that I don't want us to have the wrong idea of what the Bible is saying about women. Now, I also want to make sure we don't get the wrong idea about marriage because God gave concessions, casuistic law, case law. He gave concessions to Israel's forms of marriage, but they were never his ideal. His ideal, Jesus says, was this. One man leaving father and mother being united to one woman and the two becoming one flesh and they not being separated. So in this text, God gives us the ideal. And it is this ideal that has provided the stability of the family that we have known for 1,500 years in Western civilization, only being undermined in the last 20 or 30 years by secular progressivism. But for, and for 1,500 years, this text guided the West to build the most stable form of family the world has ever seen. One man, one woman in a committed married relationship for life. And then Jesus goes on to say, because the Pharisees say, well, that's what the Bible says. Then why didn't Moses allow us to get a divorce? which he does in 21, remember? And in 24, he talks about divorce again. They actually bring up Deuteronomy. They bring it up, the Pharisees, and they challenge Jesus on this. And Jesus said, yeah, 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 Moses did permit you to do this divorce, but he did it because you had hard hearts. It was never God's intention that we casually enter into these relationships, that we divorce our spouses, that we have more than one spouse. Those were never God's intentions. God's moral absolute is that we do it the way he did it at the beginning, which was one man, one woman, in a committed marriage relationship for life where the woman is the pinnacle of God's creation. It's Mother's Day. And we want to learn to treat women right. So I thought about like a top 10 list of ways to treat women right from the scripture. And I thought, you know, if just a man reads that, already you got a man talking about women on Women's Mother's Day, and it's already weird. So I just thought if I'm gonna do a top 10, I'm gonna get a woman to do it for me. So I wanna ask you to join me in inviting the lovely Mrs. Young to the stage to read our top 10 biblical ways to treat a woman. Come on up and be nice, be nice. Because it gets hot when you come up here. I can't tell you how hot it gets. So, this is my wife Julie. Y'all know Julie, and so, um, all right. We're gonna do. We're gonna do. We're gonna do top ten ways uh, in the Bible to treat a woman. Anything you need to say before we go into this?
1: Well, do you see that row right there? Yes. That's the best Mother's Day ever. I got my kids all here.
0: And me too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, me too. Okay, so. A Biblical way to Treat a Woman. Let's start with number 10.
1: Should I, like, scream it like you do?
0: <laughs> I knew this wasn't going to go well. <laughs> okay. If you it. are a
1: child, obey your mother. Very important. Obey your mother. Obey your mother. Yes.
0: Uh, number 9. <laughs>
1: If you're an older woman, train younger women to live by Christian virtues.
0: I want to come back to that in just a second.
1: Number eight. If you're a man, look past sex to see in women the holy image of God.
0: Number seven.
1: Be considerate of women.
0: Number six.
1: Treat women with respect. Number five. Practice mutual submission with women. Number four. Encourage women in ministry.
0: Number three.
1: Bless women and praise them.
0: Number, that's a good one, number two. You're doing well. Good job.
1: Yeah, I learned to read in the first grade. (laughs) Um, Love women as Christ loves the church.
0: Uh, number one, see, see the respect I'm modeling respect right now. I'm not even, I haven't said even half of what I was thinking. So number one, number
1: one. This is your number one? Yeah. (laughs) I think number one is don't forget to say happy mother's day. Um, Recognize the beauty of men and women jointly sharing in the inheritance of God's grace.
0: Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question in a minute, but before that, so you said something at the first service about the women who had kind of mentored you. That was kind of an important thing where Titus 2 says the older women are to train the younger women. And by the way, it doesn't say old women because everybody in here thinks, well, that's not me. I, I just want you to know it is actually some of you, but I'm not going to say which ones. It doesn't say old women, it says older women. And so, like Rachel's disciple, 18 year olds, and Rachel's 20. I know you were born on July the 11th of 1994, but I can never do the math. She's
1: 26. 26.
0: So, a 26 year old. I can do old, math too. I can read and do math. <laughs> you know, I got control of the mics. If I just signal them, they turn that thing off. Um, a 26 year old can train an 18-year-old. I'm saying that because I don't want you to think, well, I'm not old, so I don't have to do that. No, if, if you've raised your children and you're 43 years old, I guarantee you there's some struggling mothers who would love it if you would invest in their lives. Um, I mean, that's a, such an important thing. So comment on that, because you did at the first service. Or did I already say what you would have said?
1: I think so, but um, there were definitely some women that poured into me. Uh, and I appreciate it so much. Uh, Sarah Jenkins, who's passed away, Gloria Daniel, Ruth Mays, Ann Beatty, Nancy Webb, Joanne Coggins, so many, so many women poured into me, made me a better mother and wife, and well, I'll forever be grateful. Are
0: you, are you holding back on what one of them advised you when you were really struggling? Do you remember you oh, really I struggling? remember
1: a time when I was struggling as a young mom with two children still in diapers. Was it, was it both of them or just one of them? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm over here <laughs> if you need me. Well, you know, Keep I'm going. glad
1: I don't live in the Bronze Age. Uh, um, and I noticed in that verse that said the men we're the ones doing the stoning. There is no way on earth a mother would do that.
0: You know, I do want to say, and we need to, we need to start bringing this down, but I do want to say there's no evidence of that, that anyone ever stoned a son. I mean, historically, there's no evidence that text ever actually was carried out.
1: Oh, good. That's I'm good. I'm saying
0: that because who would bring their son down and say, right. we're done with them? Right. Um, so, That's good. Okay, one, other, one last thing. It's Mother's Day. You got a warm, heart heartwarming Mother's Day encouragement for us best mother's day you had what was it
1: oh well, today's the best mother's day i've ever had john and mackenzie rachel and dalton adam they're right there on that row and um Luis is here too and it's the best mother's day i've ever had they're with me at church that's the best thing you can do for your mother
0: tell her thank you thank you awesome good job take that down here <laughs> Okay, so um, I want to share with you a thing or two, and then I'm done. In a world such as the Old Testament world, in a world where women really were mistreated and a world where men just assumed that they were superior, comes Jesus. And he comes, what? He comes surrounded by women. Born to a woman who sings this amazing song about the grace of God resting on her. And from now on, she says, all generations will bless me. A world where the very first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus were, were women. A world where women served as prophets, where they taught, where they prayed, a world where women hosted the church services in their homes, Uh, a world where maybe the most important social words in all the Bible, listen to this, maybe the most important words for for social society, for, for civil society ever uttered in the Bible were these, men treat your wives as you treat your own bodies. Do you have any idea what that sentence did to civilization? When men suddenly realized I owe something to a woman, In a world like that comes Jesus, who teaches us, you got to treat women right. And so, all of us, men and women, need to take this day, the honor we give our mothers, and remind ourselves that it's grounded in a bigger principle. Charles Spurgeon, one of the most prolific preachers in the English language, flourished in the late 1800s. Spurgeon once ran into a Hindu woman who said to him, your Bible must have been written by a woman. Spurgeon said, no. What makes you say that? And she said, because your Bible loves women. That's what we want to model where we have fallen short, maybe especially we men. Like this is a good day to say, hey, you know what? Um, we got to be like Jesus or we're like not just violating God's order we're really damaging people we're damaging them where maybe we haven't taken the time to pay attention to what God has up to uh, among women it's a good time for us to do that I mean Mother's Day gives us the opportunity and this book, even this book this Bronze Age book with its instruction about dealing with POWs polygamy, and disobedient children has this message for us. Treat your women right. So we're going to have a prayer available online. Click the button, it'll show you where. And at the back of this service, maybe you want to go back there and say, hey, Lord, give me strength to do the right thing with the women in my life. We'll stand up and sing a song. If we can help you do that, go back to the back and they'll assist you. Let's stand
1: up. John, let's sing.